The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, brothers and sisters. You can hear my voice. You can find me right in your seat, please. It's going to be with you. Grateful to be here. Please take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, you're welcome to grab one of the Bibles on the seats around you. That's our gift to you. If you'd like a bit of a nicer one and an upgrade, uh, come see me after service, and I've got one for you as well. But we're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 4 through the end of the chapter. After I've completed reading, I'm going to invite you to give thanks to the Lord for the reading of His Word. Traditionally, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and we together affirm, thanks be to God. So you're invited to say that with me. Let's turn our attention to verse 1, chapter 4 of the book of Jeremiah. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into fortified cities. Raise a standard, a banner towards Zion, flee for safety, stand not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be in ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. And then I said, Oh Lord God, surely you have deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. And at that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or to cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. 
Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming, announce to Jerusalem. The siegers come from a distant land, they shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Of the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly, and I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash, fellows, hard and crash, the whole land is laid to waste. Suddenly my tents are laid to waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how, how they are to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking into all the hills which had moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, Well, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, and I have purposed. I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archers, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among the rocks, and all the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me. I am fainting before murderers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. She pray with me. Father, give us, Lord, in these next few moments, an appreciation for your wrath, the clarity on our deserving judgment, so that we might, unlike Judah, Heed the warning to gather beneath the banner of Christ and flee to him for our safety and refuge. We ask this 
is always in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all seen stories on the news of an impending hurricane or tropical storm bearing down on cities along the coast or tornadoes leaving a path of destruction wherever they may come. Often among those stories, there are several who have refused to leave their homes. They're attached to the comfort of their belongings. This is their father's house, which he built with his own hands. This is the place where they raised their families. They're not going to abandon their homes. Or perhaps they're just ignorant of how deadly or dangerous the storm which bears down on them may actually be. Overconfident in the supports of the structure that surround them. Believing that surely the floodwaters would not reach their home. And then over and over again we hear reports of those same individuals often stranded. Calling and waiting for help. Some even to their own demise. For failing to heed the warning. The call to evacuate the need to flee. Consider for a moment an island in the center of which is a volcano which had for some time remained dormant. But then the beginnings of the rumbling began to quake and shake the island. The seismologists and the scientists and the meteorologists and all the ologists of the island decide that this thing is about to erupt. And if you care about your life and your safety and that of your children and your loved ones, you will leave your possessions and travel by the ferry which has been provided for you to the neighboring island, safe from the volcanic eruption and ash. Imagine then, if you will, the inhabitants of this land, despite the tremors and the quakes and the smoke and the billows deciding to stay. Stopping their ears up to the calls of warning. Consider those who in World War II remained steadfast in their own cities despite the blaring of the air raid sirens all day and all night. Jeremiah is this kind of warning. And though in our own mind, looking from our perspective at those sorts of circumstances, we may surely think that if they would just leave, if they would flee from danger and go to their only place of refuge and hope, they would be saved. And yet the warning here, not simply for Judah, but for us, is that they refused. As we read Jeremiah, even as Jeremiah himself wrote and chronologized these words, the end has already been sealed for Judah. They've been under captivity now by the, by the Babylonian army. In chapter 2 from, uh, from Jeremiah, we saw that God charged Israel and Judah with the indictment that his love was betrayed. In just one chapter previous, in chapter 3, we saw that despite that betrayal, God's heart for his people was one of restoration if they would simply acknowledge, confess, and repent of that sin, their sin of idolatry and adultery. In chapter 4, then, what we've read this morning is one of God's judgments against sin 
of an obstinate people. Namely, what happens when the call to repentance goes unheeded? What happens, as it inevitably does, when Judah decides not to give themselves to the Lord, to repent of their sins, to grab hold of the free offer of God's grace and restoration given to them freely out of the mouth of his prophet Jeremiah? What will happen when they refuse to leave under the threat of judgment and destruction? Well, then, it's a rather bleak picture. You may have thought as we've read through chapter 4 that this is a terrible picture of destruction. That Jeremiah is going above and beyond to, to visualize what it looks like for a city to be utterly destroyed. The language he uses is of a broken, desolate, scattered jar, shattered among the ground with a thousand pieces going in every which direction, bones broken within the body, a nation crumbling to its core. What happens when a nation refuses to repent? Or a people with whom God had covenanted refuses to be faithful to their Lord? Then in verse 4, we see that God's wrath will go forth and there will be none to quench it. When he says that you must circumcise yourself to the Lord to remove the foreskin of your hearts, he means to be genuinely repentant. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Give yourself to his kindness and grace. Return to him, O Judah and Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with no one to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God in his wisdom then sends Jeremiah to warn them of just what will happen if they refuse to repent. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, tell them to gather themselves, for war is coming. Jeremiah 4 presents the vision of two things. First, the vision of Judah's undoing. We see the depiction of the demise, the fall, the collapse, and the destruction, the ultimate undoing of Judah before God in his wrath. The second thing we see in Jeremiah 4 is what God really wants. Though God is a just God and therefore his justice demands that he deal with sin and his wrath against unrighteousness is an act of his justice, what we see in Jeremiah 4 is a glimpse of the true nature and heart of God. What we could say he really desires. It's not wrath, but communion with his people. So we'll see these two things. First, Judah's undoing, and secondly, what God truly wants. And after we've looked at these, those two things, we'll then just briefly examine three responses to the announcement of God's wrath. First, let's consider Judah's undoing. In verses 5 through 26, really the first half of chapter 4, Judah is on a state of decline. God has officially declared war against an unrepentant nation, his people, who should have been listening, obeying, repenting, coming, and worshiping, but have instead given themselves to idolatry, sin, adultery, 
fornications, all sorts of lawlessness. And so God, after giving them the call to repent and their refusal to do so, now issues a warning proclamation there in the first few verses, chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. He tells, he tells Jeremiah and others, this is a plural, to go and blow the trumpet, to sound the alarm. God has declared war. It says in verse 6 to raise a standard, a banner over Zion so that others may come to it and draw near to Zion for safety for God brings disaster from the north and is poised to usher in great destruction among the land. In fact, we see a picture of what is a lion in verse 7 which has gone up for it from his thicket. And one sense we'd understand this lion as God himself who has risen from his slumber and now has come to destroy the nation. But what we see in Jeremiah is that God's anger and wrath is channeled through the nation of the Assyrians and of the Babylonians. A great army and a leader of armies will arise from the north and come down to the south and will be all about the walls of Jerusalem. This is a warning proclamation that what comes will be great devastation and loss and destruction. And then in verses 8 through 10, Judah themselves should lament of their fallenness before God, this once great covenant people, now at the mercy and wrath of God because of their sins. Jeremiah says, put on sackcloth, weep and wail, lament, because the anger, the fierce anger of the Lord is not relented against you, but is being poured out at this very moment. Jeremiah sees in this vision, if you will, that the Lord is making preparations to invade and make war. And so the proclamation goes out to, to prepare themselves for the wrath of God against their sin. But who can stand against God? Which of us are so righteous that before the judge we may claim innocence or righteousness? Jeremiah says then in verse 8, At this point you might as well recognize that there is no salvation when the anger of the Lord is poured like a kettle of boiling oil upon the inhabitants of the land. His anger has not turned back. goes on to paint this picture of this unrelenting storm of destruction. He says in verse 8 that the Lord declares that courage shall fail. Verse 9, both king and officials, priests, and the prophets themselves would be appalled. That even those who should be leading, caring for, and guiding are now surprised that God seems to be angry at them despite their willful neglect and rejection of him. And so this hot wind now comes in from the north. In verse 11, at that time it will be said to the people in Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or to cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now what does this refer to? Well, like the lion, it's, this, it's the judgment that comes from the north of invading armies. But this analogy of a wind that blows is one that comes not to give life, not to aid, not one that would benefit God's people, but one that ultimately will destroy 
and leave desolation in its wake. Normally, those along the coast will benefit from this wind that comes off this sea. And as they separate the wheat from the chaff, and as they grow their crops, this wind provides refreshment, and it helps them do their work. But the wind that blows is not cool or refreshing or helpful, but destructive. It's what's called a sirocco, or it's really a sandstorm. It goes by several names, and it's one of these weird weather phenomena where, where this great pressure of hot air, instead of rising, falls to the ground. And when it hits the ground, it has nowhere to go but out. And a great storm then emerges, and in its wake is heavy, hot destruction. Visibility drops to nearly zero. Sand is whipped around. Tents are destroyed. It's very difficult. They may last for a few moments, a few hours. God uses this analogy to show that his own wrath will come down like this sort of storm and destroy those in its wake. Again, he goes on again and says that this invasion, this lion or this, this hot air will come and invade from the north and land to the gates of Jerusalem, surround his people, imminent doom awaits them. The Lord himself, verse 13, comes like clouds. A voice from verse 15 declares from Dan, that's the northernmost tribe all the way up at the top of Mount Ephraim, warns that there is, there is enemies on their way. And at one moment they come in verse 16 that they are already there to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. They have come from a distant land and they are shouting against the city of Judah. They are surrounding her on all sides because of their rebellion against the Lord. Verse 18 makes it very clear that this is not simply God's anger for their failures to obey, but for their wretched wickedness and rejection. Your ways and deeds, it says, have brought this upon you. This is your doom. It is bitter and has reached your very heart. In verses 19 through 22, then Jeremiah is broken over this, and he begins to lament. He says, my anguish, I writhe in pains, my heart is beating widely. He, he's now visiting himself in the middle of this siege by the foreign armies, by the wrath of God being poured out. He hears the trumpets and the alarm of war, and he cannot bear it. He's broken under the condemnation of God. All of this leads ultimately to verses 23. Jeremiah says, I looked upon the earth, and behold, it was out form of void to the heavens, and it had no light. Astute readers of the Bible may pick up on the language here from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and earth, it was without form. It was void. It was empty. And the first thing God did was to, pro to proclaim light. And yet here we see the undoing even of creation under the wrath and condemnation of God. The earth was without form and void. He looked to the heavens and they had no light. Looked at the mountains and they were quaking. The hills had moved to and fro. Things were coming undone. The world was being uncreated. There was no man in this creation. 
The birds of the air and the beasts of the fields have fled. This fruitful land which God put man into and filled with animals now was a desert. Its cities were laid in ruins because of the fierce anger of God. The effect then of God's divine judgment is an uncreation of sorts. It is a complete and utter fracturing of the created order. This is apocalyptic. And the visuals that Jeremiah here is painting is both figurative and literal. The destruction is very real. The hand of God is very real. The wrath of God is very present. The threat of foreign armies is very near. But to you and I in our modern ears, this may seem like extreme language. In fact, this may seem even like an extreme response on the part of God to a couple wayward people. But if this is true, my friends, it is probably the case then that you have very little or low view of the justice and righteousness of God and of the offense and the sinfulness of sin. God's judgment here, his wrath against people, however angry he may be, is always fitting a king who is just and righteous. If he was not just, he would allow sin to continue. But God must act. His own nature demands it. Against a truly wicked and rebellious people, a king must put them down. So we see this picture of Judah's undoing at the hands of God. And this is a warning to those who would heed and listen that God's wrath is very real. That this isn't simply a picture of a painting that we can look at and agree that it's nicely and well done, but is very distant from us. God's wrath may have abated for some time, but there is a moment coming in our life where we will stand before God, you and I, and we will have to give an account for our sins. And the same wrath that's depicted here as being poured out on Judah will be the wrath that each one of us will have to answer if we have no hope of mercy before him. So let us not be naive that God is not a wrathful, vengeful God when his glory is usurped. This does not make him an egomaniac. This makes him just and righteous. And so Israel's undoing is laid before us as an example and as a warning. But I mentioned not only do we see Judah's undoing, but also what God really wants. He goes on to say in verse 27 that the whole land, though the whole land shall be a desolation, listen, yet I will not make a full end. That is, what God really wants is not complete and utter destruction. Though if his justice demands it, it will be so. But here we have a small glimpse that his heart is not for utter destruction of his people. However much a father may discipline his children, a father's heart is not for the total destruction of his son, but for their restoration. 
Discipline is what good fathers do to wayward, sinful children, to learn. Here, God's heart is not for destruction, but for peace. And so he says that I will not make a full end. Even in his anger, he, re he reserves hope. What does God really want? He wants the heart of his people. He wants the heart of his people. Notice what it says in verse 29 and 30. It says, normally, when the horsemen, the archer, come near, everybody in the city decides to leave. They take refuge. They scatter around. They don't stick around. But what does Israel do? What does Judah do? They dress themselves up. They try to seduce their enemies into not killing them. So notice what it says. And you, O desolate one, in verse 30, what do you mean, or why do you dress in scarlet, that you would adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you would enlarge your eyes with paint? He says, in effect, do you not realize that you are dressing yourself in vain? These lovers do not seek your safety. They are here to kill you. They despise you. They do not love you. God loves you, not these enemies. What God wants is the heart of his people. But the heart of his people has been given over in adultery to foreign lands. So this warning here is really an example of God's love. So even here, you may have noticed in verse 14, there's still a call to repent. There is still time to avert disaster. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. If Judah would repent, God's anger would be relented. What God really wants is not the complete destruction of his people, but their heart and full affection for him. And this is what he will seek, even as he disciplines them under his own hand. You'll notice Jeremiah's response to all this. There's really three emotions he exhibits in this text, and this is unique among Je Jeremiah as a prophet. We have this picture of him as one who's really wrestling with what he's being called to declare. Go back into verse 10 and notice that there's confusion among, Josiah, Je among Jeremiah. Confusion as God confronts this complacency among the people. He almost calls God to account. He says, wait a minute. Lord, surely you have deceived his people, saying that it will be well with you. When in reality, the sword or the knife is at their throat. Jeremiah says, you've allowed prophets to preach peace, when in reality, you've been angry with us. You've allowed your people to be lulled into a sense of security when in reality your wrath has been kindling this whole time. This is an honest confusion and complaint to the Lord, which would be right for us to also recognize that at times God allows our complacencies and our sins to go on, despite the fact that he has elsewhere revealed to us, rather explicitly, that those sins must be forsaken. Yet ultimately this is a false complaint. Because 
Judah, Israel, Jeremiah, even knows that God has been clear from the beginning of what was expected of his covenant people. God confronts the idolatrous complacency of his people and says there's never been peace between us as long as you have sought other gods and other lovers. So the confusion is misplaced, but secondly, he also has fear as God brings ruin to the city. He says there in verse 19 that he's, he's anguished. This is, an, this is a real pain within his gut of what God is bringing upon his people. The walls of his heart are failing. His heart is beating wildly. He's wailing under the oppression and the heat of God's wrath. The sirens and the trumpets, the alarm of war, are unwavering. And fear, real fear has set in. A fear of God's anger and judgment, a fear that even Jeremiah himself may not be spared from such destruction. So he humbles himself to the Lord and asks that God would be gracious. And this fear turns to frustration, not at God now, but now at God's people. Frustration with the wicked for constantly provoking God's wrath despite his constant grace and mercy and calls to repentance and his own faithfulness. He becomes frustrated there in verse 22. My people are foolish and they know me not. They are like stupid children who have no understanding. In fact, you can consider them wise only in their doing of evil because they do not know how to do good. The emotions here are why Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet, since he laments so expressively over Judah's sin and destruction. However, Jeremiah here is not simply complaining. Lament is not simply complaining. It is a turning to God. It causes him to take action and to plead with, with those around him. He takes his, his frustration, he takes his fear, he even takes his confusion to the Lord, and he asks God, why is this happening? And he takes that fear and frustration to those around him and says, you must repent of this. You must turn from your sins, lest God would not relent of his anger. Brothers and sisters, we must pray for more Jeremiah-like emotions who turn to God in the midst of their frustrations or confusions and fear or turn to others to call out sin and hypocrisy or complacency lest the Lord bring judgment upon them. Jeremiah here laments because he knows how real God's wrath is. As he warns of the coming destruction for those who fail and refuse to repent. In fact, I said we'd look at three responses to the announcement of God's wrath. We've already identified two. The first was Judah's response to God's wrath, the announcement of God's wrath, which was to ignore it. They did not heed the warnings after warning after warning, and so wrath would come. The second response to the announcement of God's wrath was to Jeremiah, which was to lament its coming, to turn to God, to cry out, to wait, to wonder, perhaps to hope. But there is a third response to God's wrath that Jeremiah ultimately leads us. And that is to escape it. 
We must not ignore it like Judah and must not only lament of it like Jeremiah, but we must learn and seek to escape God's wrath. That's the third response. Again, in verse 14, when God says that Judah must wash their heart from evil, this is the means by which they would receive and escape the wrath of God through his mercy. Even in verse 31, we see remnants of how God would give you this means of escape. It says that I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretches out her hands and says, woe is me for I am fainting before murderer. This language is strikingly resembling that of what Jesus himself would say on the cross. He had been forsaken by others. He was encompassed, as he quotes Psalm 22, forgotten, as it were, by God as his wrath is poured out among him. Jesus himself fainting before murderers who hangs him to the crucifix. It is Jesus who cries out under the wrath of God so that those who would seek escape may find it. You do not have to accept your fate as a condemned sinner. Here, God offers an alternative. The banner to which we must run, the banner to which I hope foundation waves, to which we call others, the banner to which we must seek refuge is not a fortified city erected of walls of morality, of theology. The banner to which we must run and seek refuge is Christ himself. It is the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is to him that we must run if we are to escape the condemnation and wrath against evil and idolatry and wickedness that each one of us are guilty of doing. There is comfort here then for the sinner that God has provided a means by which we may escape his wrath, by which his wrath would be relented, not ignored or set aside, but redirected from you to Christ, that he becomes for you a sin, that you might become the righteousness of God, that he may take on all the wrath and judgment of God against your sin that you would not face even a single drop of God's condemnation. See, God will come in judgment as a lion, Jeremiah says. But Christ has come as the lion of Judah to rescue his people, to protect them and not to devour. God's hot wind of wrath will blow on those who refuse his mercy. But to those who seek refuge in Christ... It is the sweet wind of the Spirit that blows and revives the heart of man. Under those who refuse God's wrath or God's mercy and are under his wrath, the whole world for them becomes undone. They are utterly destroyed. But in Christ, a new creation is formed. A new people are made by God's grace. 
Friends, this is the comfort that Jeremiah hopes that we may draw from. This is the well that we will seek to drink from. That God's wrath is very real against your sin and mine. But it is Christ who has taken on that wrath. He is the lamb of the sacrifice to atone for sins. He is the lion of Judah, which God has raised up for our deliverance. He sends his spirit to revive our hearts that we may repent and seek him in our help, in our time of help. He is the one who observes, who absorbs, that's the word, God's wrath, so that you and I, as Romans 8 would say, may be justified. And having been justified by faith, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is the promise of the gospel, friends, that you and I who receive Christ as Savior receive not then the condemnation of God that you and I deserve, but the mercy of God in Christ. Jeremiah then reminds us that our response must not be to ignore the warnings that we see of God's word. Not simply to lament of God's warning of destruction, but to seek refuge from it in Christ. Not just savingly once, but regularly throw ourselves to Christ as the answer of our hopes and fears and frustrations and confusions. That Christ would be for us the means of our daily refuge. As we pray and read, we do not forsake him. We do not take for granted our safety and salvation, but come regularly to the throne of grace in our time of help and need to receive comfort and mercy, for it is there in abundance. If you're not a Christian this morning, then I simply want to implore you to consider God's wrath, which remains over you, because of your sin. For he who created you has been rejected in your own heart. Your sin is the same as rejecting God as your creator. He who made you to honor him is sinned against in your dishonoring against your own body, your idolatries, your lies, your gratifications of the flesh, None of us can truly estimate the volume of sin against the righteous God. But thanks be to God, he has answered us in Christ. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, would account iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is that none of us can. And so we must put our hands over our mouth and simply look to the grace of God who gives us, like the ark and the flood, a means of our escape and safety from the wrath and judgment of God. There we may see true comfort. There you may see the restoration and the hope of Zion. There you may have real and genuine fellowship with God. I want to implore you to escape the wrath that awaits us at the coming judgment. And on that day when we stand before God, we do not stand condemned, but justified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ who is our justification. We do not earn it. We do not 
deserve it. But you and your mercy have offered it freely to those who has had their eyes open and their, their hearts awakened to the reality of your wrath against sin. Each one of us being and deserving condemnation because of our sin. But none of us is spared your wrath and judgment. But each one of us here can listen and hear the offer of your grace and see very clearly the way out. Lord, this is so much more than just a ticket to heaven. This is the hope of salvation and true blessing and joy. This is, God, to be fully united to you in grace. We pray, God, that you would so work in this church that the banner of the gospel would be raised and that we would, like Jeremiah, call to the people around us, God's judgment awaits you. Seek refuge in Christ. God, I think, Lord, even of the the revival that seems to be breaking out in parts of the country now in Asbury. And I pray, God, that such revival would happen here. But it only happens, God, if it starts with us, if we run to the refuge of Christ, and that the Spirit of God breaks out among us, keeping us, sustaining us, growing us in dependence upon God for all things. We look to Christ and we love him for this and so much more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. See